Howdy! My name is Thomas McPhee, and you're listening to The STEM. The STEM is a music podcast where I talk about my thoughts and feelings on whatever happens to make its way into my musical rotation each month. This episode's going up a little late because I uh, got a little discombobulated in my transition back to my hometown, but uh, with any luck, I'll be able to produce content more regularly from here on out. Um, The next episode is likely to go up a little bit late as well, but it is coming, and I will give you more updates on that when we get to the end of the episode. For this episode specifically, we're going to be doing something a little strange again, and I'll be reviewing the original Broadway recording of Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. Due to the length of the album, I won't be doing my usual track-by-track breakdown, instead focusing on the story, the genre bending, how it operates as an independent piece of art and as a soundtrack, and finally pointing out a few highlights and low points across the album. I first heard of Natasha Pierre when I was in college, when my housemate Chell introduced me to the original cast recording. Here was this bizarre, vaguely Russian electro-pop musical that, while at the time it didn't fully grab my attention, it became lodged in my head slightly. Fast forward to this year, when the show moved to Broadway and picked up a whole host of Tony Award nominations, and I remembered that this weird little show had seemed halfway interesting before, and maybe its time on Broadway had aged it well. I went back and picked up the new soundtrack and discovered a show that felt completely revitalized, retooled, and incredibly more expansive and cohesive than what I remember hearing before. The concept for the musical is relatively simple. It's an adaptation of a 70-page sliver of Tolstoy's War and Peace, which tells the story of Natasha Rostova, sung excellently by Danae Barton, a young woman who is engaged to Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, who is fighting in the war against Napoleon. Natasha moves for a time to Moscow and lives with her godmother Maria and her cousin and confidant Sonia. While there, she meets Anatole Karagin, the incredibly attractive womanizer and socialite king of Moscow, who sweeps Natasha off her feet and plans an elopement with her. Parallel to this is the story of Pierre Bezukhov, sung by the lovely Josh Groban, a melancholy academic who has inherited a massive fortune but struggles every day to piece together his purpose and find his way in life. Pierre is married to Helene, Anatole's sister, but finds his marriage loveless and is dragged somewhat begrudgingly into Anatole's untoward affairs. The story, to my mind, succeeds for several reasons, primary among them being the fact that the main characters are not infallible, as they tend to be in many musicals. All of the characters here have several deep and inherent flaws, and they feel like real people whose concerns and priorities make a certain degree of sense. They are not fanciful heroes, always striving to fix the world. They are small people who are often at the mercy of a large and scary world, and are almost always trying to continue to be themselves, despite the war raging on and on. The musical also ends without a big bow-tie grand happy ending. The plot is to some degree resolved, but most of the characters are either explicitly unhappy with the result, or realize that they have only narrowly avoided complete ruin and that there is still an incredible struggle ahead of them. The only character who has anything near to a happy ending is Pierre, who at the end of the play finally rediscovers his spark for life and feels inspired to go out and create change and make a difference, but this is tempered by his sadness that he couldn't solve Natasha's problems and that he doesn't know exactly where he's going, but he is finally ready to make the journey. It feels like an incredibly smart and well-balanced arc to a Broadway musical and helps make the whole thing feel human rather than artifice as many musicals do. The themes of the story are also quite engaging, focusing on the dangers of privilege, naivety, and the ways in which women were were maligned by societal conventions in the past, though it has many parallels to the present. Anatole, Helene, and Pierre all let their privilege and their wealth corrupt them, Anatole, Helene into cruelty and a sense that they can have anything they want, and Pierre into a frozen inaction and immobility. 
Pierre self-indulges in his own existential angst, and it means he doesn't see the signs of the conflict that's coming. Anatole and Helene are so removed from the general populace by their wealth that they cannot grasp that, to paraphrase the musical, besides your own happiness, there is such a thing as other people. Natasha is young and naive. She's sympathetic in her youthful awe and splendor for everything she sees, and yet still foolish. What's admirable, though, is that by the end, Natasha accepts the circumstances she's gotten herself into and is ready to meet them head-on, showing a kind of realism and maturity in the penultimate song that we've yet to see from her in the course of the show. Natasha becomes grounded and Pierre becomes alive, and it creates a poignant and bittersweet finale that still reminds its characters and its listeners that each of us are incredibly small in the scale of the universe, and we must ourselves reach out to make what we want. Part of what makes the soundtrack so successful and what helps strengthen the story is the way it's communicated through music. The show is an opera, and as such, almost the entire play takes place during its songs, with all the dialogue and action sung. The soundtrack album is two hours long, and so when you listen to it, you are getting, minus a few small moments here and there, the entirety of the show, which makes it an incredibly accessible story and a piece of art to listen to. This is taken to extremes in the first song, Prologue, which completely breaks the fourth wall and gives many winks to the original work it came from. This is all in your program. You are at the opera. with quotes lifted from the original Tolstoy itself, which adds a certain framing and feeling to the language and the dialogue you hear. Even when you can't visually see what's occurring, most of it is spoken aloud or can be inferred, so it's easy to follow along with the plot. Similarly, the actors all have very distinct singing voices, which means that you're not constantly having to guess which character is saying what in any given moment. It's a full story that you can listen to and follow and get invested in with minimal to no outside research or work required. While it's a compelling story that is easy to follow in excess, none of that would really mean anything if the music wasn't engaging and lovely, and Dave Malloy, the writer of both the script and the music, has done an incredible job incorporating a dozen different musical styles, while still creating a final product that feels sonically cohesive and engaging. The instrumentation features many strings and reeds, pianos, and a simple drum backing, but then also explodes with synths and electronic whirs and bleeps, constantly challenging your sense of comfort and never trying to live only in some sense of period accuracy. That said, though, much of the music is clearly inspired by traditional Russian folk music, with several familiar melodies that evoke the time and place excellently. The genre constantly floats as well, featuring some traditional Broadway musical soliloquies, some dubstep-inspired electronica, hip-hop, pop, and rock numbers, and the aforementioned folk music, often sometimes shifting between many of these within a single song. Given how it is an opera, many of the songs cover a long sequence of actions or scenes within the show, so these changes and progressions help the listener to get a sense of when the plot has shifted gears or something has changed, which again helps make the story easy to follow and parse. There's also something really inspiring in how the music is clearly willing to play with dissonance and bizarreness, more than just incorporating electronica in an opera about 19th century Russia. There are several moments of wonderful discordant harmonies or bizarre noises that intentionally unsettle and disrupt the listening experience. There's a moment early on where Natasha meets her fiancé's sister, Mary, and the two women do not get along. To show how they feel stuck in needing to play nice with each other, despite their misgivings, this sonic moment occurs. Constrained and strained. 
Similarly, later on, all the major characters except for Pierre attend the opera, which is described as being, quote, grotesque and amazing, and sounds something like this. I suspect that this may be a moment where missing the visual cues hurts interpretation, there's something compelling about these bizarre and scary sounds and the opera's willingness to thoroughly put forward and make the audience feel the disturbance that Natasha feels. While not all songs in the musical equally hold my love, there are only one or two that I routinely skip, which on an almost 30-track album is a pretty impressive feat in my opinion. The final three songs on the album are all very plot-heavy and feature more simple or repetitive musical structures, which make them more rewarding as emotional payoff for the story and less so for just casual music listening. Similarly, the song No One Else from the first act is just a little too simple and plain as a love ballad for me to give it many repeat listens. However, I could easily recommend just about every other song on the album, but I'll try to keep it to just a couple. Moscow, The Opera, and The Ball from the first act are all jam-packed with action and story movement, as well as some incredible melodies, instrumentations, and beautiful musical moments. Similarly, Preparations, A Call to Pierre, and Natasha Very Ill are my highlights from the second half, preparations especially for this line in particular. And you're at with a stubborn attachment Small-minded people have for conclusions they worked out for themselves Repeated his argument to me for the hundredth time while I have long loved listening to soundtracks, the fact that at least a few made my honorable mentions list for 2016 is a testament to that, I think, there are certain difficulties that come with listening to them, and reviewing them especially. Often, instrumental soundtracks are designed to only function or really work when they accompany the visual medium they go along with, as they are meant to hammer in an emotional response to what is being fed through the visual media. Take away the visual, and the music falls flat or starts to feel repetitive or ridiculous. There are, however, some exceptions to this, where the composers clearly work to create a piece of music that functions sonically on its own as well as with the visual support. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, and The Fountain by Clint Mansell are my go-to examples of exceptional soundtracks that function beautifully on their own. And now I'm happy to say that Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 joins their ranks. Though in this case, the music brings the emotions and the stories with it, allowing the characters in the world to be clearly painted over the course of the album's two hours. It's a remarkable musical. The sheer number of Tony nominations it picked up for being as weird as it is is pretty remarkable too. That has created a soundtrack album that conveys so much of what the spirit and feeling of the in-person experience is that while it isn't the same, it comes remarkably close and provides a fulfilling and moving experience all the same. It is successful on so many levels and in so many ways that it constantly surprises me and engages me intellectually as well as emotionally. There have been few things I've wanted to sing along to out loud as I listen to it on my iPod walking down the street, but this is one of them and it's damn hard to control myself and not belt out as I listen. I haven't loved a musical this much in about a decade, and I am hopeful that the creative team continues to produce exciting and equally revelatory works in the future. Thank you all for listening to another episode and indulging me in another taste of the unusual. You can reach me on Twitter, Tumblr, and Gmail, all at the STEM Podcast. If you have any comments, angry, happy, or otherwise, feel free to send those along. You can also find The STEM on iTunes. Search for The STEM Podcast to find me, and if you can, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating if you like the podcast. 
The theme music for the show was Cash Rules by Ari De Niro, which is available from Needle Drop Co. I'll be back next month, but slightly later due to going abroad on a trip and maybe not having all the time to focus on uh, preparing my scripts and getting everything ready as I'm tootling around Europe seeing the sights. But I'll try and have another episode sometime before the end of August, and then we'll try and get back onto my routine schedule. Until then, you've been listening to The Stem. Thank you.